So this evening, I'd <clears throat> like to talk about the journey from aversion to kindness. I could also call this talk the anatomy of aversion, but that might sound a little bleak. Recently, I came across an article about a boarding school in England that cares for very young children that it's been found no one else could actually care for. And the children who come to this school have deemed to be, have been deemed to be not only unmanageable, but actually by much of society unlovable. And many of these children have been through 10, 20, 30, or even more foster placements before they end up at the school. But despite <clears throat> the very best efforts and commitment of many of their foster parents to offer a life of safety and care, it's found that the level of rage and fear held within those young bodies and minds was often just too much or even too dangerous to embrace. Now, these children, of course, know of course about it. These children had all been abused in some way, emotionally, psychologically, sexually. They'd all been taught through their lives that they were somewhat worthless, um, lovable, without value, that the world was a dangerous place to be in. And the staff, as they wrote about it at this school, knew that the slightest trigger, or sometimes not even any perceptible trigger, any of the children could erupt into an uncontrollable rage and violence that could be so dense and blind that they would harm themselves or anyone near them. And in each of these episodes, the staff would talk about needing to gently restrain the child, to talk to them in calm and quiet voices about what was being experienced. And the restraint was often necessary to protect the child from their own violence. But it was to offer also a sanctuary. And the aim was the child could begin to understand that they were valued, that they were no longer to be marginalized or uh, ostracized. But the staff said even more importantly in these moments of rage, their speaking to the children was so important to help to provide a language, a vocabulary to, ex to their experience, to actually provide a vocabulary to the experience. And the staff at the school said, said that they, they offer as much love as possible to the, their children but also acknowledge that love is not enough. That there is a teaching, hopefully, to bring about some understanding of a commitment needed to learn to walk new pathways of relationship for these children with themselves and others. And ultimately, as the director of this school said, their aim was to transform hatred into love even though the prognosis often seemed to be full of despair and hopeless. As the director said, we have to keep hoping, keep, keep alive the possibility of a hopeful outcome. 
that our work is to embrace the tiny possibilities of emotional growth. And this is, of course, a very extreme story. But in reality, for many people in this world, the journey from aversion to kindness, the journey from despair to a sense of possibility is probably the most challenging journey any of us make in our lives. And I think we probably do recognize that that journey involves much more than good intentions, involves much more than the intention to be loving and caring. But that journey from aversion to kindness, I think for most of us actually asks for a very profound commitment to walk new pathways because it is essentially about changing the shape of our heart. It's about transforming the shape of our mind. Uh, 2,600 years ago and more, the Buddha identified aversion as one of the most persistent and pernicious of emotions that had the capacity to debilitate our lives, to poison our relationships, with ourselves, with others, and with life itself. That aversion was a force that had the power to leech joy and happiness, and really to estrange us from others. And in many ways, aversion makes us a stranger to ourselves. It's very much identified in this teaching as being really one of the leading causes of perpetuating suffering causes of harming ourselves and too often, of course, leading to enormous destruction and harm in the world around us. Now, I think those of you who work in therapeutic environments, but those of you too who sit on a cushion, know too well the power that aversion has when it's self-directed to lead to profound depression beliefs in unworthiness, um, hopelessness, and bleakness. And I think we see in ourselves as waves of aversion because, I mean, does a day go by without a little wave of aversion? Does an hour go by? I think when we see the the waves of aversion in our own minds, sometimes they're a quiet whisper, judging, comparing, resisting. Sometimes we see the waves of aversion in great shouts of blame and ill will. But the result is always the same, isn't it? I mean, aversion aversion essentially makes us deeply unhappy. It leads to guilt, to alienation, to agitation, to isolation. 2,600 years ago, in speaking about the power of the emotional force of aversion, the Buddha just observed very simply that hatred never ceases by hatred, that hatred ceases only by love. This is an eternal law. But we might also start to realize that aversion doesn't go away just because we want it to go away, as human as that is. Aversion can't end just by imagining or wishing or 
trying to should ourselves. Aversion doesn't end by willpower. Aversion, on one hand, ends through love and through kindness, born of understanding the landscape of aversion, the anatomy of aversion that we can know really so well. That path of ending or bringing aversion to an end really begins by befriending it with mindfulness. But the other part is equally to befriend our commitment to cultivate our capacity to walk new pathways in every moment that aversion arises. In the past, probably as many of you know, there were all kinds of techniques that promised to get rid of aversion basically by expressing it, by venting it. Although I don't know why we needed therapeutic techniques to do this. I mean, lots of people in the world <laughs> go around doing just that. You know. But anyway, there was a, a whole kind of you know, techniques that evolved to promote venting aversion, you know, punching pillows, you know, screaming and acting. And now, of course, it's, it's pretty widely recognized that all this catharsis tends to do, apart from exhausting us, is that it provides a temporary relief from the stress and the tension of aversion. But also, it's pretty widely recognized that that venting of aversion actually reinforces our capacity to be aversive. It deepens that neural pathway so that we are more prone to be aversive and angry. I think it's very easy, you know, because, you know, we don't necessarily go through our lives filled with rage. You know, so it's kind of easy to sort of dismiss the the sort of small moments of aversion, you know, the little grumpiness, the irritations, the intolerances, the little moments of, of judgment. We can kind of think of them as being like unimportant. You know, like it, it doesn't matter, we think, you know, if, if I'm pretty sort of aversive to, you know, when someone coughs or, you know, puts a note up or, you know, I mean, think how many things trigger aversion. We can think it really doesn't matter. Yet those small moments of aversion are actually the approachable moments. It's better not to wait for rage. <laughs> You know, because we will be unskilled. We will be under-resourced in know how to, knowing how to meet those great moments. It's really best to really think of these small moments of aversion, of irritation, as approachable moments where we can begin to find some capacity within ourselves to transform the aversive mind by really acquainting ourselves with the territory of aversion. There's a Tibetan saying from the Tibetan tradition. I'm sort of, I always paraphrase these things, by the way. <laughs> Adapt them, a little poetic license. 
Do not take lightly these small moments of aversion, believing they do little harm. Even a tiny spark can set light a mountain. Now, the small moments of irritation and the powerful moments of rage, again, it is as if they are the different arms and legs of one body. Now, part of mindfulness is about learning to embrace the whole of our emotional landscape with curiosity, with kindness, with acceptance, with compassion. I think sometimes we we hear words like equanimity or non-attachment or non-identification. And we can a little bit get the impression that mindfulness is meant to create a kind of emotional flatness or indifference or a kind of emotional desert, which is really hardly a very attractive or inspiring proposition. And in fact, nothing is further from the truth. If anything at all, you know, very much the work of mindfulness is to foster an emotional wakefulness and freedom. Because I think we recognize that as human beings, we are emotional beings. That it's emotion that gives texture and color to our lives. That emotion is the basis of all of our relationships, both the difficult ones and the lovely ones. That it is emotion that allows for empathy, for connectedness, for intimacy, for love. And when we look at our emotional spectrum, we can see there are countless lovely emotions in that spectrum. Happiness, joy, generosity, appreciation, kindness, empathy. But there are also a lot of difficult emotions in that spectrum. Fear and ill will and resentment and jealousy and guilt. And this practice is not about sort of classifying emotions as good or bad emotions. It's interesting, a Tibetan monk once said, you know, that, that in Tibetan, there's only two words for emotion sad and happy. And then he didn't know he had so many emotions to learn English. But I find that a very interesting kind of framework, don't you? Because sad is, you know, ill will, fear, rage, guilt, jealousy, you know, blame. It's not bad. It's sad. And think about how your mind is when it, it is in any of those difficult emotions. It's a sad mind, isn't it? It's just a sad mind. Happy is not good, but happy is, you know, all of those lovely emotions that actually really um, allow us to kind of live in this world with ease and without fear. Now, in the framework of our emotions, 
in this teaching, we're asked to bring a different kind of way of reflecting upon those, that emotional spectrum. And the framework we're asked to bring into our emotional world is to re- it's very simple, really. It's really to look at what leads to suffering and struggle in our emotional world and what leads to the end of suffering and struggle. What is it in our emotional world that leads to the perpetuation of fear and isolation and despair and sorrow? And what is it that heals sorrow and struggle? Now, in my mind, these are important questions to ask ourselves. And in my mind, it's the only framework that really matters. But it's a very different way of investigating our emotional world because you notice the absence of I in there, or mine, or me. It's what leads to struggle and sorrow. What leads to the end of struggle and sorrow. And that is really an investigation of the moment. It is that investigation and that framework of understanding that leads to wise responsiveness. I think we can accept that as long as we live, we will be emotional beings. And this emotional landscape is perhaps the most pivotal of all landscapes to be mindful of. And in some ways, the most challenging, I think, of all, my, of all landscapes to be mindful in. There's a Zen story about a famous, very well-known, very much respected Zen master whose son died. And he sat weeping inconsolably. And his disciples, some of his disciples came to him and, he, and they said, why are you crying? Haven't you taught us that life is impermanent, that everything passes, that all things are something of an illusion? And he said, yes, I have taught you that. But this passing is the saddest of all passings. And this illusion is the saddest of all illusions. And, you know, as human beings, As Narayan said last night, there are times when we will be sad. There are times when we will grieve. There are times when we will be heartbroken. But acknowledging if we could not feel those emotions, we could also not love. Hmm? That the capacity to love opens the door to the capacity for grief, and for sadness and for heartache. There are times in our lives when we will be very happy, when we will be joyful, delighting. Now, none of these emotions, not none of them are an obstacle to emotional freedom. None of them are an obstacle to equanimity or balance. But what about aversion? What about aversion? How do we understand aversion? Is it an emotion or is it something else? 
why is aversion identified not only by the Buddha, but in many mindfulness therapeutic approaches as the quality that can truly poison our lives? Why is aversion given so much attention, for example, in mindfulness-based applications? Is aversion an emotion or is aversion a reaction? It's a difference between those two. Is it an aversion, an emotion, or is it a reaction? Now, there's a little area I'm going to go into here, which is I, I'm hoping I can express this clearly. <laughs> I want to make the difference between aversion and another emotional response we can experience. First of all, I'll start by saying what we normally call anger, what we normally call anger, we, well, sometimes what we call anger we see as being different than aversion. There is an emotion we experience that we are prone to call anger, which I think is a very poor word. I I'm really have been searching the last two days for a word to describe this emotion and come to appreciate the poverty of the English language <laughs> because we don't have one. I thought German might work, but then I thought it probably wouldn't help most people and I don't know it anyway. <laughs> if you think about the children in the story I told in the beginning, these children are very angry. Why would they not be angry when they had been abused so terribly? If we brought any of those children into this environment, would we ask them to be accepting, allowing, accommodating? Or would we ask them to experience what they were experiencing and to understand it perhaps in a different framework? Okay, so what we call anger. Now, these small children did not and could not know what to do with their anger in their powerlessness. So they vented it or suppressed it. Yet in reality, in this life, there is much that is unacceptable, just as it was for these children. There is much that is unjust, there is much that is terrible. I'm sure all of us have been faced with situations. We might just see it in the media or read about it or hear about it. Situations of terrible, terrible cruelty. When you, you see people you know, caught in wars they have nothing to do with, dying of hunger when there's so much food, you know, when you see you know, expressions of, of terrible racism or any of these kind of activities human beings can do that is so unacceptable. What do you feel when you see that? We do feel something, don't we? I mean, you not feel, you know, what's that kind of <gasps> feeling? That's the word, no, that's the word I can't find. It, it feels like anger. Is it anger? Is it really anger? Now, I want to introduce to you, I want, first I want to introduce to you the original 
meaning of the word anger from the dictionary. The pain felt in the face of a wound. Interesting. The pain felt in the face of a wound. Now I want to give you a poly word. Samvega. Samvega. Now samvega is sometimes translated as a trembling, a quivering. It is more often translated as a quivering of spiritual urgency. Interesting. A quivering of spiritual urgency. And let us reflect on this, because when you are faced with something so unjust or so terrible, you feel, you're away, can't you? I mean, you feel this very deep, deep, deep response, this very deep quivering. But we actually, I don't think we have a word for it. There can be a trace of anger within it. Because spiritual urgency can have a trace of anger within it. It doesn't take away the spiritual urgency. But what is the effect of that quivering, that sense of some vega? Isn't it often the urgency of compassion? Isn't it kind of the urgency to reach out and alleviate that pain, the urgency to reach out and alleviate that suffering, knowing that we can affo- can't afford estrangement, we can't afford distance, we can't afford indifference, that in a way, when we're actually faced with that quality of injustice or pain, or, or you know, in whatever form it is, we know that we actually are being asked to respond. And very often the response is very unhesitating. It's very spontaneous. So I want to naturalize this word, samvega, because I don't have a better word. And no outrage, you look it up in the dictionary, it doesn't work. (laughs) Outrage is more in the sense of indignation. I'm really struggling here to find the right word. I have explored it, I've been through, I've spent a lot of time with the dictionary in the last two days. Outrage doesn't actually, although we could relate to it in that way, it doesn't actually really work in what I'm going to talk about here. The Dalai Lama once said that anger can be the beginning of powerful altruistic acts of healing. And I think when he said that, he's actually referring to this kind of something. He's not referring to the anger that alienates, pushes away, resists, is he? Not if it's going to be the beginning of a powerful act of healing. And when we think of most times when we feel anger in our lives, okay, the, what is the response of anger? It's either, it's usually not to reach out and heal. <laughs> it's often either to strike out or to withdraw. So I'm trying to be quite specific about my language here, and I think it might become clear. When we are faced with the unacceptable cruelty, we need to know how to act. We need to know how to say no. I think some vega or that sense of spiritual urgency is a way of saying no to the causes of suffering. It is not turning away, but it is learning to act from a place that brings suffering to an end. 
We can be aversive with anything. It's a habit. What we are learning to do, actually, is to move from that place of aversion, I think, to this place of Samvega, a spiritual urgency to heal. Now, we do need to be very careful here, you know, because, I mean, anger is kind of like a charged word in our culture. Some people think it's good, some people think it's bad. Some people think we need to be more angry. Some people think we need to be less angry. But the one thing I think we can probably agree on is that when we are really angry, we actually feel that our anger is pretty righteous. My anger. But I think what's a more appropriate question to ask, and this is maybe how we make the distinction between what I'm calling anger more in the realm of aversion and some vega, does that anger, if we use that word, does it lead to the healing of suffering or does it lead to the perpetuation of suffering? Where is it leading? Is it leading towards compassion and reaching out? Or is it leading to armoring and pushing away? That's something we need to explore for ourselves. Now, I think Samvega, or if we use anger in a more skillful sense, it's our first response to the actuality of injustice or suffering. Now, aversion to me is a different creature. Because aversion is actually, now I'm going to go into aversion, we're done with some vigor, okay? I'm going to go into aversion. And aversion, aversion is not about meeting actuality as it is. See, I think some vigor meets actuality as it is, but aversion is not about meeting actuality as it is, it's about denying what is. And aversion, as I look at it, is a very complex state. Rather than being a singular emotion, if you really look at aversion, it often holds a whole lot of different strands. Frustration, sadness, disappointment, resistance, they're all kind of painful strands. Now, in Buddhist psychology, aversion is seen to be them as being one of the most powerful manifestations of fear. Now, that puts it in a different context, doesn't it? Powerful manifestation of fear. Now, the aversion then, or that manifestation of fear, also has an effect. It leads us to try and get rid of, to avoid, to overcome, to suppress, to be in an ongoing state of argument with our life and experience of it. And if none of this works, our fixing and getting rid of, then we tend to sink into numbness and depression and despair. Now, the practice of mindfulness is begin to understand the aversion that seems so solid at times can really be unpacked and understood. And as I mentioned in Pali, the word metta it is actually, it's actually a verb. Kindness is a verb. And kindness is born in the very places where, of aversion where kindness actually feels so lacking. So aversion is, in my sense, it's a reaction to the unpleasant. It's a reaction to suffering that we don't know how to understand or embrace. We are averse to. 
A reaction that can feel so familiar and habitual, it's like it's automatic. But you know what? When we feel estranged from our capacity, our inner capacities, to respond to the unpleasant and the painful with kindness, or to find new pathways, we tend to sink into aversion. When we don't feel the capacity to meet our fragile, unpredictable, and ever-changing life with kindness and understanding, we tend to sink into aversion. And too often, aversion sinks into self-hatred, despair, or numbness. Now, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, aversion was really useful. Um, you know, from, from the t aversion, you know, had, has its roots in much-needed self-protection mechanisms from an evolutionary standpoint. You know, in ancient times when we were kind of, you know, doing our thing, not us personally, but our forebearers, when they were doing their things in ancient times, you know, you actually needed to be hyper-alert to your environment. You know, like the sound outside the cave could be a tiger. Um, and to many predators, you know, we were just, we were, the many predators we were sharing our little world with, quite frankly, we weren't much more than breakfast. And we needed to be hyper alert to the possibility of physical injury. You know, in those times, you know, there were no walk-in clinics and actually a toothache could kill you. We needed to be hyper alert to the threat from others. All those others that we were competing with for the same water hole, you know? And if there wasn't any protection, we would run to the sanctuary of our caves. So as part of the human psyche, anxiety and aversion is basically as ancient as the human psyche. It's pretty hardwired stuff. Pretty hardwired stuff. But let us accept that times have moved on. <laughs> And we are no longer protecting our caves or our water holes. We are now protecting our sense of self. And the fear of injury lies at the heart of aversion. The fear of injury lies at the heart of aversion. And we can be fear, fearful and anxious about a lot in the life we're living. And we can be pretty fearful about all the life we imagine ourselves living. The reality is we really do live in an uncertain world we cannot control. We can't control other people. We can't control how other people will treat us or react to us. In actuality, you know, there's a whole lot to be fearful of. Our bodies break down in ways we can't predict. We age and die. We can be afraid of the loss of people that we love, afraid of failure, afraid of making mistakes, afraid of being criticized, rejected. We can be afraid of difficult emotions, of not having enough, of being ignored, of being isolated. It's a pretty long list of things we could be afraid of. Now, as you know, in Buddhist teaching, Buddha was really good at lists, so he got this, this long list of fears down to a short list of five. There's some debate about which is tops the bill in this list of five. The first two, the fear of death and the fear of public speaking. <laughs> contemporary research, contemporary research done at Harvard 
actually puts the fear of public speaking as being more significant than the fear of death. The fear of death, the fear of public speaking, the fear of not having enough, the fear of the loss of reputation, people thinking badly of us, and the fear of unusual mind states or emotions. Okay, so let's get real here. The simple truth is none of us are totally going to avoid a lot of this stuff. We're all, in our own experience, going to have our own measure of happiness and joy and pleasure, but we're also going to have our own measure of adversity, difficulty, sadness, disappointment. When life is just not how we think it should be. The essential fear in all of this is the fear of vulnerability. And that fear of vulnerability, the fear of the possibility of injury, we tend to cloak with the armor of aversion. We cloak that fear of vulnerability with the armor of aversion. Now, the first great step, I think, in liberating our hearts from the painfulness of aversion is really our willingness to embrace our vulnerability which is to embrace uncertainty, it's to embrace our humanness, and even to know that this is not just ours. I mean, have you noticed when you come to the interview groups, when you listen to all of the other women in those groups, how often you are hearing your own story told in other words, or often the words that you would use? And what we hear is the human condition of being alive in an uncertain and uncontrollable world. We are learning to embrace what the Buddha called the first noble truth. You know, that there is unsatisfactoriness. There is at times suffering in this life. But aversion and resistance does not protect us from suffering. In fact, avoidance really only makes us more agitated. What did Freud say? Neurosis is the refusal to suffer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, I think we start to know in meditation, and certainly people know this in mindfulness applications, that the first great leap that a person makes is in their capacity to look pain and suffering in the eye. And to know pain and suffering as pain and suffering without aversion or resistance. This is the first great step I think we all make in our journey from aversion to kindness. Learning to soften the stories of and explanations, the blame and the judgment, to know the difference between pain and aversion. That aversion is a reaction to suffering and kindness is a response to suffering. One thing we can all, I think, be pretty certain of is that whatever adversity we meet in our bodies, in pain, in aging, in illness, whatever adversity we meet in our hearts in terms of disappointment, frustration, whatever adversity we meet in our lives in terms of difficulty, loss, That aversion is only going to compound suffering. 
aversion is only going to compound the suffering. And mindfulness is really about turning this tide of resistance. Now, many people, I know so many people tell me they are so surprised when they discover how incredibly powerful that shift is to move from resistance to being with, to move from pushing away to looking life in the eye. People tell me how extraordinarily transforming that shift is. That that shift is beginning to open the doorways into kindness and understanding. That instead of fleeing or worrying or ruminating, we discover in that willingness to look the difficult in the eye that it softens, that our capacity for acceptance, for kindness begins to blossom, but so too does our capacity for response. Now, kindness is not something just a fortunate few people are born with and everybody else is dispossessed. Kindness is born of what we do with our mind and our attention. And kindness has to do with how we pay attention Learning, the first step is just learning to be still, to pause in the midst of aversion and resistance when everything is telling us to flee. And if we can pause and be still, you know, whether it's the pain in the knee, whether it's a difficult person, whether it's not getting what we want, if we can pause and be, sk- be still, then we begin to have a relationship. We begin a relating to what the moment is bringing. And whatever is being brought to in this life, it is asking us for the kindness of our attention and our listening. And we begin to uncover, I think, in that stillness, our mind's inherent capacity to heal, to change, to trust, to offer sanctuary to ourselves. Perhaps one of the most lethal ways that aversion is directed is actually to ourselves. When we tell and retell the story of imperfection, of unworthiness, of unlovability, of failure, the aversion we can feel for our bodies, the aversion we can feel for our minds, the story of inadequacy sometimes that's been told to us about ourselves, the story we tell ourselves. That very familiar voice of the inner critic, the inner judge, scolding, it's like a version at its worst. And you know what, if we tell the story often enough, if we listen to the story often enough, it becomes a truth. But it's just a story. It's just a story. The thought and even the story is actually not the primary problem. The belief in and the identification with the story of self-aversion is actually what causes us to suffer. The foundation of all kindness is learning to be what it means to be a friend to ourselves. Learning to approach ourselves with kindness in the midst of aversion. As the Buddha once put it, he said, you can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you yourself, and that person cannot be found. 
you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your unconditional love and affection. Now, this is not an invitation to begin telling us ourselves a different story about how terrific and amazing we all actually are, because we wouldn't even believe it. Huh? But we are, in practice, learning to attend to our self-in-kindness in a different way, with, with curiosity, with investigation. It's almost like we're learning a new language, unfamiliar to us at first but a new language that grows and thrives and is naturalized through the attention we give to it. Love, I think, is sometimes a simple willingness to attend wholeheartedly, to commit ourselves to our own well-being. You know, mindfulness is often translated as remembering, and we remember many things. But as we attend to ourselves, our body and mind, our stories of brokenness and imperfection, one of the most important things we remember is that we remember that no story can describe the potentiality and vastness of a human heart, including our own. That the seeds of kindness and patience and generosity lie within all of us. And our task, and I think our commitment, is to nurture what heals rather than what destroys. There's a story of a native elder who was walking beside a river with his grandson and considering what wisdom he might want to pass on to his grandson. And as they walked together by the river, the, the, the elder, he said, you know, you know, my child, he says, I sometimes feel as if there are two great rivers flowing within me, two great forces flowing within me. Like, like two wolves, he says, there is a wolf who is lusting after, after war and possession and, and conquest. And the other is the wolf who longs for peace and for kindness. And, and the child says to his grandfather, he says, which of the wolves is going to win? And the grandfather says, it depends on which one I feed. Depends on which one I feed. Now, there are some steps in this journey from aversion to kindness, and, and I, I just kind of like want to tell you about these. <laughs> it's a good plan, is it? Just as the children in that story could be held in gentle arms by people who could help them to trace with language the landscape of their rage and terror, we need to learn to be a guardian of our own minds, to not mistake our stories for our truth, to find the language, to describe our experience, to begin to know the landscape of aversion of cruelty, of resistance. That is important. It's part of our practice, is to learn that vocabulary to describe the landscape of our experience. Sometimes we need to know what it means to come into and to know the body of aversion, the emotional body of aversion in the body, to know its impact, to begin to explore that, to touch that with kindness and compassion. 
Sometimes we need to find the willingness to listen to the waves of aversion, large and small, and not get on board. But to learn to be still, to find our ground, and to withdraw our participation. What are we feeding in that moment? Sometimes in in the journey from aversion to kindness, we're asked to find the courage to embrace our life as it is, rather than we think as how we think it should be. In the times of the difficult, to find the steadfastness of heart that can know suffering as suffering, and know that if we did not have the capacity to feel pain, we would not have the capacity to feel kindness and love. Sometimes in the midst of aversion, when our world can start to shrink and feel so small and so tight and so filled with imperfection, as you know, it's a good idea to pay attention to what is well. As someone said in my group this afternoon, pay attention to the non-toothache. To cultivate the wisdom to discern the difference between an event that is happening and our thoughts about the event. A big difference. We're asked to learn to cultivate a non-clinging, a non-dwelling mind. Because that is what feeds the wolf of alienation, of estrangement, is the clinging, identifying mind. And most of all, I think, we are really asked to find the willingness and the commitment to walk a path of kindness, to walk a path of compassion. Okay, just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.